Thank you for coming this morning. Happy Grandparents Day to you. If you brought a grandparent with you, we want to extend our welcome to you and thank you for coming to Trinity. Hope you've enjoyed your day thus far. And we are in a series this morning on loyalty and disloyalty. And I can't think of more, uh, something any more applicable to loyalty than a grandparent to a grandchild. I look back on my life. I don't have any of my grandparents alive and haven't for years. They've all left and went to eternity. But as I think about them, there is a great peace in my heart and life because of the investment of my grandparents uh, and the role they played. Not necessarily in a spiritual way. I'm not saying that any of my grandparents weren't believers. I hope they all were. But I knew that they loved me. There was no doubt in my life that they were committed and they wanted uh, God's best for me. So take advantage as a grandparent. You have a great voice and you have a chance to uh, love on your grandkids and to teach them and to treat them the way that God would have you do that. And what a great influence you have and an opportunity. So thank you for joining us this morning. You know, many have said, we're in a series, by the way, on loyalty and disloyalty. Many have said that you can count the number of true friends that you have on one hand. A man named Larry Flint said, The two most misused words in the entire English vocabulary are love and friendship. He says, A true friend would die for you, so when you're starting to try to count them on one hand, you don't need any fingers. And when you find a true friend, it is rare. In the day's, today's text, we're going to be looking at a story, and God put it there for a reason, and we're going to look at that in a moment. But Romans chapter 15 reminds us what stories like this are for. Romans 15:4 says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So if you want to know what a true friend is and what it looks like this morning, we're going to show you and then finish today's message with the ultimate friend, who is Jesus, our Lord. One man wrote that loyalty is allegiance to a person, cause, institution, through both good and bad times. Key phrase there, Loyalty through good and bad times. When you're loyal to someone, you're not just loyal when things are going right. You're loyal when things sometimes go wrong, but you're still there. And today's text we're going to read is 1 Samuel chapter 18. And as you turn there, I want to read a story out of a book that I read recently that talks about loyalty. Today is 9-11, so this is very applicable, by the way. Did you know that during World War II, there were over 100,000 U.S. citizens of Japan who were living in the United States when Pearl Harbor was bombed? Those Japanese citizens of the United States were confined to internment camps because the attack on Pearl Harbor immediately raised suspicions as to where their loyalties were. This heartless and unfair treatment of U.S. citizens later resulted in apologies and reparations through the Civil Liberties Act of 1988, and this legislation admitted the government's actions were based on racism. So that's largely why that phrase is in there, if you didn't know that. 
this man goes on and writes, competing loyalties can put us in some awkward situations. Loyalty to a group such as a nation, a company, a church, listen carefully, or a political party complicates our relationships. How many of us can't be friends with people who are a Republican? How many of us can't be friends with people who are a Democrat? I have one jokester over here, but I'll let him slide. (laughs) The point is, sometimes we have things that divide us that may or may not be the most important issue. Think about that, Christian. I'm I'm just tossing that out there, by the way. He goes on and writes, If countries are at peace with each other, holding dual citizenship may not be an issue, but as soon as a conflict arises, balancing competing loyalties becomes very challenging. He goes on and gives the illustration of the Enron scandal where there was some disloyalty and selfishness that goes on. But he goes on and he writes, Loyalty has a hierarchy. My loyalty to my wife, for example, is going to supersede loyalty to my country, a baseball team, or even a friend. While we're instructed to obey the laws of our nation, there are times when loyalty to God trumps that command. And Peter settled this issue for us, saying that we must obey God rather than men. There are also priorities of loyalty between people. When we are, we are commanded to love everyone, however, it is impossible at times to be equally loyal. He goes on and writes that loyalty falls into three categories, God, causes, and people, but this is, today's message is going to focus on people. And then he gives the illustration of these two people, Jonathan and David. Now let me set the scene for you. Jonathan was the son of a king. His father's name was Saul. His story is told in the book of 1 Samuel. Originally, the books of 1 and 2 Samuel were one book. Saul was the first king of the nation of Israel. If you're familiar with the story, the nation of Israel was to be set apart, to be a witness to the world. But when they began to see all of the other kings, they wanted their nation to be like them. And so they began to ask for a king. You know what the word Sha'al means? It means to ask for. And God gave the people of Israel exactly what they asked for. They wanted a big, tall, handsome, warrior-like figure to go out in front of the battles to fight for them so that the nations around them would see this great, big, fearful man and they would win. They wanted to be like the other nations. And so God gave them what they asked for. And oftentimes with a big, strong, handsome, muscular man, you know what you get? Not always. Oftentimes. You get pride, selfishness, domination, intimidation, fear, greed. And I could go on down the list. And that's exactly what they got. And so when Saul stepped on the scene, he became paranoid of anyone who threatened his leadership. He became very dominant toward people, killing people in his own inner circle who crossed him. Saul is a picture of a psychological, psychotic figure. He is a counselor's dream when you go to study him because 
You can never figure out which way this guy is going to turn, who he's going to be today or who he'll be tomorrow. He's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. He had a son whose name was Jonathan. And after Saul took the throne, he wanted his son Jonathan, he says, to become his second man, and he wanted to put him in charge so that when Saul left off the scene, the dynasty would pass. However, when you begin reading the story, God commanded Saul to go kill a certain army and completely annihilate them. But Saul, becoming greedy, did not kill them. He kept what he wanted for himself to pad his army, and God became very mad, and God pulled the kingship from Saul and said that he had put his his kingship on another man who had a heart like his. And we know that young man is David. Now as the story progresses, they face this huge Philistine whose name is Goliath. They are out in the valley of Elah. Karen and I have both been in this valley. And here's young David who is, comes in from the field after Saul and all the troops are supposed to fight this big giant. And the way it worked back in that day was you put your warrior forth and they put their warrior forth and whoever won, the other army submitted. So the Philistines put forth Goliath, who some people say was nine feet six inches tall. That's a pretty big guy, isn't it? And here was Saul. What was he doing? Hiding up under a pomegranate tree, biting his fingernails. And so here's this little sheep boy. His name's David. He's probably just a teenager at this time. Here's all this chatter going on, and he goes out and says, well, who's this big Philistine that's cursing our God? I'll fight him. Of course, all of his brothers tell him he's just wanting to show off and be a fool, but David goes down, and you know the story. He picks up five stones and puts them in his pocket with a slingshot. Somebody said, why did he get five stones? Was he afraid he was going to miss? You know, well, later on in Samuel, it does say that Goliath had four brothers. Maybe David was packing the clip there. I don't know. <laughs> But nevertheless, he goes down in the valley and the big Philistine comes out and says, are you coming to me like a dog? You think I'm like a dog? And David just hurls the sling around and says, I, I come to you in the name of the Lord God. Boom! And sunk the stone right in Goliath's forehead and Goliath falls to the ground. I'll save you the rest of the story. You can go read it. It's fascinating. David gets his sword and whack, you know, takes his head off, carries it around as a trophy. And now we pick up our story. Are you ready? verses 1 through 3. As soon as he, David, had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. He's talking about the victory of Goliath here and how he's going to serve in Saul's army. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. Now let me stop here for just a moment and say, most Bible scholars or chronologists say that Jonathan was some 30 years older than David. We might have the picture that they were two teenage boys growing up together, but that's not exactly what you get when you run the chronology. Jonathan was quite a bit older than David. He was 30 years his senior, 25 to 30 is the rough estimate. And so as this young kid comes in and he's in, in Saul's chamber, now you have this older son, Jonathan, who hears David's words and his heart just melts. You ever met a friend like that, that your soul is like one with their soul? And 
you would live for them, you would die for them. I mean, I hope this is how we feel about our wife or our husband, right? But here it, here it goes. He loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Now, by the way, back in this day, that was huge because they had to go to the Philistines to get a mattock or a hoe or a spear because Israel did not know how to smelt iron at this time. And so when you gave someone your sword, that was all of your defense. He was, in other words, telling David, you are my shield and my defense. I'm putting my trust in you. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. He became the commander of the army. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. But something happened. You want to know what happened? Uh, the women got together and sang a little praise chorus, and Saul heard it out the palace window. David came marching back home one day, and this is all it took, by the way. The women said, Saul has killed his thousands, but David his ten thousands. One phrase struck fear, jealousy, and paranoia into the heart of King Saul. And if you go in and read the story, it says from that point on, Saul's heart was set against David. The minute he was threatened, he became this paranoid, schizophrenic, crazy man. Now, put yourself in the spot here. You're Jonathan. Your father's the king. You know if anything happens to him, you are naturally going to succeed him and you will be over all Israel. But you have your friend David, who you see God putting his hand upon because you know your father's been rejected from the throne. You're wanting to be loyal to your father, but at the same time you have a friend. What do you do? That's the title to my message today, When Water is Thicker Than Blood. There are times when water is thicker than blood. And this is one instance in which that happens. One man wrote a book, and this was a quote in it. He said, loyalty runs on sacrifices, and those that can't make sacrifices can't be loyal to anybody. So let me be clear. Loyalty is going to cost you. If you're going to be loyal to God, listen to me carefully, it's going to cost you. It might cost you a promotion. It might cost you a relationship. It might cost you a job. It might cost you some money. Loyalty will cost you. And if you're not willing to be loyal, you know, you're in it for yourself, then sky's the limit, I guess, until it runs out. And by the way, we all struggle with this. Did you know that? None of us have ever mastered this issue. There are some people, by the way, in Christiansburg who are believers who don't struggle. Did you all know that? I know of at least two big pockets of people in Christiansburg who are Christians who never struggle. You all know who they are? One is up off South Franklin Street. It's in Sunset Cemetery. The others out here off of Roselawn, at Roselawn Cemetery, those Christians don't struggle anymore. But everyone else that's alive who is a believer in Jesus, we struggle. 
because we live in the flesh and in the real world and, and none of us have mastered this. But we're going to learn some truths today from Jonathan that can help us, first of all, be better friends and second of all, learn what it takes to do that. So quickly, what was it that caused Jonathan to be loyal to David? Well, first of all, Jonathan saw David's God-given humility and respect for others, and it was magnetic. If you've ever had a friend, and they're humble, and they're gracious and kind, and you can tell that God has put that in their heart, it draws you to them. Look at the text carefully in chapter 18, verse 1. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, <laughs> I mean, his words, his mannerism. The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and he loved him as his own soul. Just in the way this man presented himself, the way he spoke, this magnetized David and Jonathan's heart together. A second reason. He recognized God's hand and blessing on David's life. If you look down in verses 3 and following, it was very evident then that Jonathan is willing now to make a covenant with David because he saw this man defeat this giant. His father was scared to death of Goliath. He would not go fight him. And here's this young man who had no fear of man, only God. And he was willing to risk his life for the Lord God. And David did that. And he won Jonathan's loyalty. And he knew that God's blessing was on him. I'm over in chapter 23 now. I'm going to read this verse to you. Chapter 23, verse 17. Listen to what Jonathan says. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul my father also knows this. Apparently there was something going on that wasn't recorded in Scripture. Perhaps one of the prophets stood up before Saul and revealed to him what God's plan was for David. We don't know this, but one thing we do know is that without question, both Jonathan and Saul knew that David was going to be God's man, that he would be king, and in Jonathan's mind, he thought he would be number two in control. And by the way, life has some funny turns, doesn't it? You know what happened to Jonathan, don't you? He never got to fight with David. David was on the run, still running from his father, Saul. And Jonathan and Saul were both killed in a battle. You can read 2 Samuel chapter 1 where David gives a eulogy of both. And the startling thing in that eulogy, I mean, he's running from Saul for years and years and years. He never says one bad thing about him. Fascinating. Fascinating. A third reason that caused Jonathan to be loyal to David was that he had a higher priority to truth and God's plan than he did toward treasure and position. I'm going to read chapter 19, verses uh, 1 through 7, so if you're there, you can follow with me. You can read the incident that happened here. Saul tries to get David killed from chapter 18 to 19. It doesn't work. And so Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan then told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. 
Stay in a secret place and hide yourself, and I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. And I will speak to my father about you, and if I learn anything, I'll tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David, saw his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine, and the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it, and you rejoiced, Dad. Can't you hear him? Why then will your sin, why will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without a cause? Now, by the way, can you imagine saying this to your dad? Knowing that he's some irrational, you know, crazy man. He's already tried to pin somebody to a wall with a spear. Tried to kill people in his own inner circle. And we don't know all the details. But he was crazy. And Jonathan here is willing to stand up against his father knowing that it's going to cost him personally. Verse 6, And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. One of the first times he did that. And then he swore, As the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David and reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. Now obviously that didn't last long, because within just a few verses here, Saul is trying to kill Jonathan again. But the point is this, Jonathan had a higher priority when it came to loyalty than his father, than family, than blood. You want to know what it was? Listen carefully. Truth. Truth. He, he would not lie and he would not go against God's higher priority. In other words, Dad, I love you, but you're wanting to murder someone which God says, you shall not kill. And dad, God's bigger than you. And I'm going to obey God, not you. And you need to really think about what you're planning on doing. And God got through to him. And by the way, have you ever had to do that in the Christian life? You ever had to sit down and order a priority and say, you know, these are some standards and I'm sorry, I can't break those. And this is how it works. One, two, three. And you choose to be loyal to that. And that's exactly what happened here. A couple of quotes that are worth mentioning. Carefully read that. There's something wrong with your character if opportunity controls your loyalty. Quite piercing, isn't it? The Enron scandal. You're a CEO of a company, yet you know information, and you do some dirty deeds under the table so that you can get rich, and everybody else goes broke. This is, by the way, why they don't allow inside trader in the stock markets. This is why realtors no longer can represent the buyer and the seller. You know, there was a time when realtors could do that. Uh, this is why uh, financial investors need to be your fiduciary so that they have no stake in the game. They are making decisions based upon you and your interests. Because tempting someone sometimes tests character, doesn't it? 
And here's another quote, blood makes you related, but loyalty makes you family. Interesting passage in the Gospels in Matthew when people came to Jesus and said, Jesus, your, your mother and your brothers want you. And Jesus turned around his, to his disciples and followers and said, these are my mother and my brother and my sister. Blood makes you related. Loyalty makes you family. Here's an interesting phrase, and I want to elaborate on it just a bit. True friends are hard to find, difficult to leave, and impossible to forget. Jonathan and David, hard to find a relationship like that. How did it happen? God brought them together. Difficult to leave, Jonathan found David when no one else could. He was at the lowest point in his life one time. You need to read this story. Matter of fact, turn over to chapter 23 real quick. I'll tell you about it. David's on his run for his life from Saul. And he goes down to this cave called Adullam. 400 men come. And they're all depressed, in debt, and deranged. I'm not joking. You can read the story. 400 people around David. And David's just wanting to just get out of life. He can't handle it anymore. And all of a sudden, verse 16, Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish. Notice what the text says. He strengthened his hand in God. You want to know what a real friend is? It's somebody that will come beside you when you're at the bottom of the barrel. In the good times and the bad. And they'll put their arm around you and tell you, don't you dare quit. I know things are hard. And if we were going by situational ethics here, things look down. But you listen to me. Don't you quit. God is not finished with you. And then maybe they'd tell you something like this. Have you not read in Scripture that everyone God uses greatly, He breaks mightily? I mean, there's no one in Scripture that God didn't bless and use that we know of. And I, I, maybe I shouldn't say that. Most of the people in Scripture that God uses, He breaks. God appeared to the Apostle Paul on the Damascus Road, and what did He tell him? I will show you what great things you must suffer for my name's sake. If God is going to use you greatly, He may have to break you greatly. And He does that. But what a blessing to have a friend who comes along in one of those times and puts their arms around you and says, God's not finished. You can't see the picture yet. But God's still painting. Don't you quit. True friends are hard to find, difficult to leave, impossible to forget. Here was another quote. Wow, a whole bunch of them really good. Those who don't know the value of loyalty can never appreciate the cost of betrayal. This is why it hurts so bad, right? Anyway, I'll, I'll talk about that one later. But it was so good I wanted to share it. So what do you do when you're caught in the middle? All right, let's get practical for a minute. You're stuck in the middle of this person and this person, what do you do? Well, sometimes loyalty means that you have to take the high road 
and not respond in the way you want to. If you look over in chapter 24, verses 4 through 7, I want to read this passage. Uh, This is where David actually has Saul in a cave. And he goes in and he's using the bathroom. I'm just going to lay it out there. David's men are all back in the dark and they're like, Okay, David, God has delivered your enemy into your hand. Kill him. And so David, of course, sneaks up on Saul while he's using the bathroom. And he, instead of stabbing him, he can't do it. His conscience gets him. He chops off a corner of his robe just to have as evidence that he could have killed him. Now, notice what he says. I'm in verse 4 of 1 Samuel 24. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Quoting scripture, by the way. Isn't that good? That goes to show you, you better watch when people quote scripture and make sure it's in good context. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe, and afterward David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing that he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Now, by the way, David did go outside and go, Hey, Saul, I could have killed you, buddy. Had you right there. Here's your, here's your robe while you're in there using the bathroom. I could have ended it for you and nobody had ever known. But Saul, I'm not out to get you. I'm not out to get you. So what do we do? We take the high road and don't respond the way that we sometimes want to. A second lesson that we learn is, regardless of the outcome, we should always try to do what is right. Now, I want to tell you something, folks. Scripture is sometimes has some tension to it. Do you realize that there are a couple of places in here that Jonathan had to tell a lie to his dad to spare David's life? There are times in here when Saul's own children, especially Michael, when Saul wanted her to set David up so he could kill him, she had to lie to Saul to, to save David's life. Okay? Maybe I need to do a whole sermon on that. Uh, the writer of this book takes that as they sinned. I'm going to give you something, something different. I'm going to say that they knew how to use wisdom. They knew how to use wisdom for the greater good. You say, well, that, that's situational ethics. I don't like that. That's fine. That's okay. You can totally disagree with me, and that doesn't mean you're wrong. Maybe I am wrong. But there's one place where God tells Samuel, He says, I'm afraid to go down there because if I go, Saul will kill me. He said, well, tell him you're taking a goat to go sacrifice it. But there was another agenda. So you wrestle with that one, then you come back and tell me that I'm wrong, okay? The point is, sometimes you have to use wisdom in life, especially when you deal with evil people. Especially. Okay, so I just, I roll that out on the floor to let you know that The Bible is a very interesting book. I'd like to tell you some stories right now. Maybe this would be a good sermon series. Does God ever say... Well, anyway, I won't do that. All right, anyway. (laughs) The point is, it does take wisdom 
And those situations determine which wisdom we need to use, okay? Is it ever right to lie? Don't answer that question. It's never right to lie to your parents. I'll answer that one for you. <laughs> you know, but if somebody came in the door and said, I'm here to kill John Altizer, is he here? If you said, yeah, he's up here on the pulpit. <laughs> you know, remind me to push you out in North Franklin when you leave, okay? I mean, but, I mean, life can be hard. Corey Tim Boom, one of the greatest missionaries, was faced with this challenge, by the way. When she was hiding Jewish people in her home and the Nazis came in and she saw them kill them and burn them and do all kinds of stuff. and She, she was faced with all kinds of issues. So don't be so dogmatic until you've been there. Okay? I, all right. Anyway, I'm off that subject. What do you do when you're caught in the middle? Okay, the third lesson. Realize that sometimes it may be impossible to be loyal to both parties in a conflict. I mean, sometimes, folks, that is just impossible. Jonathan tried his best. It cost his own father to try to stab him one time. He did end up staying with his father and going out in battle and ultimately got, got killed in a battle with his father. But until his dying day, he was loyal to David. And what did David do? He gave them the greatest eulogy, and I'm, I'm not going to read it, but in that passage, he did say that he loved Jonathan with love that was greater than a love for a woman. I mean, there was something about that man love. And by the way, that is not, that is not homosexuality. The word David used for love there is not the word that is used for that. He's talking about a heart bond. If you've ever served in police work, if you've ever served in the military, if you've ever been in death's door with someone... And you've got their back and they've got yours. Let me tell you something, folks. There is a depth of brotherhood there, especially between warriors, that you can't hardly explain. But I want to assure you something. It's there. And so those who have been there understand what David meant. But when you're in the midst of this conflict between two, sometimes it's impossible to be in that situation and have loyalty just to one. Sometimes you have to make a choice. So now I'm going to ask you a question. If I ask you to pull out a piece of paper and write down the initials of who the Jonathan is in your life, could you? Now, by the way, if you have this kind of a friend, let me, let me tell you something right now. You should get on your knees when you get home and thank Almighty God above that you have that person in your life. Because I'm going to tell you what one author said. He said, you can count them on one hand and you don't need fingers. It is rare when you have a true friend like this. You better thank God for them. You better protect your relationship with them. Don't let anything petty come in your life that would destroy something like that. Value it. Guard it. And be thankful for it. But now I'm going to ask you another question. And it's kind of a follow-up. You know, to whom are you a Jonathan? You know, most people say that every individual has a circle of friends of about seven people. And of those seven, they may or may not have a loyal friend. These are like acquaintances, close acquaintances. But none of those seven may be a loyal friend. But... 
to whom are we trying to be a Jonathan? Are, are we willing to do that? I mean, sometimes, you know, our heart gets dashed and we get walls up in our heart when people hurt us. And one of the ways that we protect ourselves is we put up this wall, and this is what we say, you can come this close, and buddy, let me tell you, you're not getting any closer. If you come any closer, and you, you start touching my heart, I will cut you off that quick. <laughs> and get away, because, you know. By the way, we all have this in us. Every one of us have this in us. This is a wall that God has to gradually crack and pull apart so that we can allow ourselves to be what God wants us. He doesn't want us being like that. God doesn't want us being a stone-hard stone wall that nobody can penetrate. I do believe He wants us to have loyal friends, and I do think He wants us to be a loyal friend. But, you know, hurt in our life causes us to put up barriers. And we won't let people cross them. By the way, in the next message, I'm going to talk to you about how to bust those barriers. Because we need to know how to do that. You know, the, heart, the heart's a hard thing. It's hard to work on. But who are you like? You know, one mentor that I had said that every person... Here's another sermon, by the way. Amazing, it's amazing how the Holy Spirit brings this stuff to mind at times. Every person needs three people in your life. You know, everyone needs a Paul. Who, who is Paul? Paul is the mentor, the guy you go to with your problems and your questions. He shows you the path. And every person needs a Timothy. Who, who's Timothy? He was the one that Paul brought under him and he discipled him. He showed him the way. He pushed him to go do things greater than he could do. And everyone needs a Barnabas. Who's Barnabas? His name is Joseph. They renamed him Barnabas, son of encouragement. Because everyone needs an encourager in their life. And you know, to function properly, we all need that. I need to add a fourth one to that. Everybody needs a Jonathan. Everybody needs a Jonathan. And pray to God that we get them. Do you know you have a Jonathan? And he loves you greater than anybody else. I want you to listen to the words of Jesus in light of what we just talked about. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Now, can, stop for a minute. Can you imagine the God of the universe, Jesus Christ, God in flesh, came to this earth, took upon himself human flesh to be one of us, comes here and humbles himself and calls us friends. You say, well, I've never had a friend. Oh, you have one, you just didn't know about him. Greater love has no one than this than someone lay down his life for his friends. You know what Jesus did for us? He laid down his life for us. Notice what he says. You are my friends if you do what I command you. He's talking to the eleven here. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. You know, the boss doesn't tell the employees everything he's doing. 
But Jesus says, But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. And what did he tell them was going to happen? He told them that he was getting ready to go to the cross. He had to go to the cross and die. That when he died, God would send the Spirit. The Spirit would come and be a witness with the Father and the Son. And he would bring to mind all things to those eleven. He would empower them to go out and do what God called them to do. And Jesus told him, you are to stay connected to me. I am the vine, you are the branch. You can do nothing on your own. Stay connected to me and nothing can stop you. You'll produce much fruit, great fruit. And this is what I want for you. So this is what he told him. You're my friends. If you stay connected in the vine, you know what the Father's doing and I'm telling you. You and I are caught in the midst. Are you all ready of this great timetable? We're caught in the midst of this great timetable. Jesus came and he died back in 30 or 33 AD. And this is what he told them. I am coming again. He has not returned yet. But he has told his people, occupy till I come. I am building my church. You are to be my witnesses. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. I am your friend. Go and do what I'm telling you through life's bumps and scrapes and bruises. And when life doesn't turn out the way that you think it should, you've got to trust me. This is not the end. I am not finished. Please, Christian, can you hear him talking? Stop viewing this life as the end. In other words, if it doesn't happen rosy and picturesque here, it'll never happen. That is not the biblical view. You and I are not living for this life. We are living for the one to come. We are not laying up treasures in this world. We are hopefully laying up treasures for the next. We can't Walk by sight in this world alone. We have to live by faith. Trusting that God is going to overturn what seems wrong. And God is going to right everything that needs to be righted. And listen to me. It takes faith to believe God's word that that is going to happen. And there are some times when your reason will go against God's Word. You'll say, that can't be true because I feel this. I, okay, I understand that. And this is where faith comes in. You're going to have to trust God even when you can't explain it or understand it. God will make it all right. And here is our friend, Jesus, our Savior, our friend, who knows us, warts and all, Sinful proclivity and all. Selfishness and all. Pride and all. And we're all, listen to me, I'm, I'm going to offend you just like God offends me this week. We're all eat up with it. I mean, we're all into ourselves, folks. Can I, can I tell you the truth for a minute about you and me? We are all into ourselves. We want what's best for us. Because that is our nature. But when God's nature comes in and He begins to have His way and we're in the vine 
You know what happens? We start turning and we start thinking about others and their needs. And it turns from self-focus to God-focus, which naturally goes to others-focused. And, and we can be ministers to them. And having Jesus as our friend to talk to every day of our life and pour our hearts and our needs out to and say, Lord, you're going to have to help me. I don't understand this. As we read His Word, we become intimate with Him. We hear His, His voice. He directs our path. He lets us know that in this life that we're living, He has a plan. We're not just in the midst of this craziness, folks. You know, sometimes we can focus on one little piece of a tree and miss the whole forest. Hear me carefully. God has a grand outworking plan in this world and He is pushing the agenda. He is headed toward a goal. You and I are riding the train to get to that goal. Don't give up. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. I love this verse. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You know, Zach was talking about God makes some promises. Listen to how these two line up. One of the reasons that people will, will corrupt themselves, one of the main reasons is money. You know, criminal, criminal people always tell you, you want to know what the issue is? Follow the money. Follow the money. That'll tell you where the corruption is. And the second is, the flesh can never be satisfied. Listen to what Jesus tells us. I am telling you, keep your life free from the love of money. And number two, be content with what I have allotted you. Be content with it. I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? I mean, seriously, what, what can man do? What did Jesus tell us? Don't fear people who can just kill the body. Fear God who can take both body and soul. We are to fear God. We are to be loyal. We are to be truthful. We are to be honest. And we are to be friends. And we are to call on our greatest friend. I hope you know Him this morning. Because if you don't, He wants you to know Him. He gave Himself for you. You know, I, I see faces and I, I don't know you. You know, we don't, we don't come in here at Trinity and holler at people and scream at you. We're here trying to give you God's message and His Word. And I want, I want to tell you what that message is this morning. How do you know Jesus is your friend? How do you know that? You know, Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, God demonstrated His love in this, that He sent Jesus to die for your sin, to pay the debt you couldn't pay, and to give you something you could never earn on your own. You want to know what it is? It's the gift of eternal life. And if you will believe on Jesus and what He did for you, 
He will give you freely the gift of eternal life. But you must place your trust, your faith in Him and what He did for you to receive that gift. You have to believe it. Accept it. Receive it. And if you do that, according to Scripture, you cross over from death to life. And that is a free gift offered to you. And I hope, I hope you accept that free gift today. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you this morning for your word. Thank you for this incredible illustration of what a true friendship looks like. And even better, what our Savior's offer of friendship to us really is. I pray this morning that you'll burn this into our hearts. We as believers would seek to be the friend that we need ourselves. I pray for those maybe who need a friend that you'll connect people, bring a Jonathan into their life, someone that they can relate to, be honest with, because they know they'll be loyal to them. They'll always have their best interest at heart. And we thank you as we think about that, that you, Father, always have our best interest at heart. And that's why you sent Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, to die in our place and to give us something we could never earn on our own, and that is eternal life. And I pray this morning that if there's anyone here who has never accepted Christ as their personal Savior, that they would understand the love that you have demonstrated for us in the giving of Jesus and the offer of eternal life. And I pray that they would believe, accept eternal life this morning, and pass over from eternal separation and death to eternal life. And give them the assurance of that, I do pray. Thank you for your word. Thank you for revealing yourself to us. And we ask your richest blessing on our day and our week. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.